0: Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit would be with us. Fill us with your love, with your wisdom, with your discernment. And we come into a unity of uh, the family you've designed us to be. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, Growing in Christ. And the title this week is The Christian Life. And if somebody would read for us the memory text, which is 1 John 3.16, Speak up. Read First John three sixteen. Somebody read that for us.
1: By this we love, no love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren.
0: We know this is love because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What does this tell us about love? Does it give us insight into what love is? Other centered. Other centered. And and God is love. So does it give us insight into God? Mm-hmm. Do you know personally anyone who loves you enough they'd give their life for you? I hope so. <laughs> well, think it through.
1: I don't
0: think so. We're giggling and laughing, but um, you know, Revelation describes those ready to meet Christ. These are they who do not love their life so much as shrink from death. When, what did this passage just say? That we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren? Hmm. Well, think about somebody, if you do know somebody that you really know, they, would, they love you that much. What is your attitude towards that person? If you know somebody that loves you that much, what's your attitude towards that person? That? Ah, notice what, what Wendell said. It, it engenders trust, doesn't it? If you know they love you that much, it, that they would just give their life for you. It, it draws you to them, doesn't it? And, and, it, and it engenders trust. Do we know God loves us that much? Mm-hmm. Know it in our head or know it in our heart? Should be both. Yeah, should be both. Yeah. The, the, if this is true, most, most, not all, no, most parents, though, do love their children this much. True? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then if, if this kind of love engenders trust, why is it so many adolescents don't trust their parents?
1: Because they haven't matured enough to understand what it means to trust
0: that. She said they haven't matured enough. I think that's, that's going down the right trail, no question. No question. I, I think it uh, definitely has to do with immaturity. Something else, though. I think it has to do with, with, with guilt. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... Afraid. Now, was there any reason for them to be afraid of God? No. In fact... God so loved the world, he gave his only son for them, He loved them, he was still on who was the number one person on their side, loving them enough he'd give their life for them. It was God, but they were running from him. Uh, children who and i 'm not saying necessarily even do sin, but unless you consider going against family rule sin, sometimes you can you know break a family rule that isn't really one of the ten and but but kids who who do something they know their parents. Won't approve of. Do you think they often struggle with insecurity, guilt, fear? And so they hide, they run and hide. Hmm. Fear of rejection, fear of condemnation, fear of punishment. Oh Yes, I absolutely yes, fear your punishment. I, I think it's actually a mixture. I think kids want mommy and daddy to be proud of them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: They don't want to disappoint mommy and daddy. They don't want to have them look at them, you, you're such a disappointment, you've disappointed me. I think that's crushing to, to kids. And I think they hide because they, their own conscience is convicting them. They're condemning themselves. They project that back onto the parent and anticipate that from the parent. What do you think? This is what Adam and Eve did in Eden. And what did God say? Hey, who told you you're naked? You didn't hear it from me. It wasn't me that said anything about it. I wasn't pointing it out. That's your own conscience. The woman caught in adultery. Same thing. Where are your accusers? Hey, I'm not accusing. It's not me. Is there a place to communicate that love in an environment where we still have healthy discipline. God disciplines those he loves, That we know he loves us enough he gave his life for us. There's a balance there, isn't there? What is your reaction to the uh, idea of laying your... Now, now if parents and children, you, you're, you're getting that. Husbands and wives. As long as the relationship's really tight, you're getting that. Sometimes it's husbands and wives are like, no way. But if the relationship is what it's supposed to be, you're understanding that greater love is no man, who gives his life for a friend as well. How about for the rest of us? How about giving your life for a stranger? Or an enemy. Or even an enemy. You know, we're getting down to it. Um, when you hear this idea... About greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend, or this is how we know love is Christ gave his life for us. We gotta give our lives for for our brothers. Does your head go, that's a wonderful ideal? That's beautiful. And your heart go, or your gut go, do you get that little dissonance between your head going, that's beautiful, and your gut going, that's uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. Russell. My
3: question is, what does it mean to give your life? I mean, does it mean to actually die? You know, for them, or, or, or does it mean to get to that point where you would die for them? Does it mean to give your life service for them? Well, what does give your life mean?
0: I think it, I think, I think it means all of the above. I think it means that you think about a parent and a child. What does it mean for a parent to give their life for the child? They're given their time, their energy, their resources, their sleep. (laughs) Right? Or they're, isn't that what they're giving? And then if the child's in danger, does the, does the parent run into danger to save the child? I think it means it all.
1: But then a lot depends on the circumstances, because you hear of people like that plane that went down that time in the river, and that man jumped in to save these people, in the fr- and he didn't even know them. Right. So I think a lot has to do with the circumstances of giving your life.
0: Well, there's no question about it. I think the, the issue is, though, the, the attitude of the heart. Do we have an attitude of a heart that we really care about people, that if we were in that circumstance, there are people, that we, you, the one you just described, man jumps in, doesn't know him, but there are other people who would just walk away. Oh, yeah. There's other people. We've heard stories. They watch somebody getting raped. They don't even call the police. Mm-hmm. We heard these stories, right? So there's a heart. Do you think? Do you think it's at that moment of crisis that you prepare your heart for that, no. or your heart's prepared and at the crisis moment revealed? Yeah. yeah, Wendell.
1: Sometimes it's
2: easier to give your physical being rather than your agenda.
0: Ah, oh, okay. See, sometimes it is, isn't it? Let me tell you, read this story to you. Just after midnight, February 3, 1943, when the army ship Dorchester was torpedoed by the Germans just south of Greenland, its passengers and crew had 25 minutes to get off the boat. As 902 people went down uh, went for the life jackets, it uh, quickly was discovered that there weren't nearly enough. Of the 13 lifeboats, only two functioned. Uh, in the ship's final minutes, Methodist senior chaplain George Lansing Fox... Rabbi Alexander Goode, Dutch Reform Minister Clark Poling, and Roman Catholic priest John Washington were helping passengers leave the vessel. These four men appeared, all of them without life jackets. The chaplains quickly gave up their own vests and went down with the ship, perishing in the freezing water. Survivors saw them locked in arms, praying and singing the Navy hymn, Eternal Father Strong to Save, just as they went down. Didn't that just get you? Did you notice the four different faith backgrounds they came from? Should they have been at that moment arguing over which day they worship on? Mm-hmm. Does it bring to mind that, 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 text I mentioned a moment ago, greater love, uh, I mean, uh, they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Evidently, the stories told, these guys weren't crying in the corner, Pleading, begging, frantic, scared—they had a composure. What gave him that composure?
1: Not in an answer to your question, but I was just thinking—we have a wonderful example of that with Desmond Doss,
0: mm-hmm. who put his life out who and, was
1: a medic and mm-hmm. gave his mm-hmm. life for so many servicemen. Mm-hmm. And also, I was wondering at the same time. Do you think that the servicemen really are prepared to give their life for their country?
0: No. Mm-hmm. Never. They give their life for their friend. Mm-hmm. I was a military psychiatrist, and, and soldiers never get up out, and put themselves in harm's way for ideals of country. Mm-hmm. When you're 3,000 miles away from your country in a jungle somewhere, you're not waving the flag when, when mortar rounds are going off around you, uh, uh, machine gun fire, and all this other stuff. Why do you get up out of that foxhole and expose yourself to danger? For the person that you've trained with, that you care about, your friend. And, this, and, and, the, and the, the engine that drives war is love. Because you can't prosecute a war without unit what they call in the military unit cohesion and unit morale. And what that unit cohesion and morale is, the intensity of the bonds of brotherhood between the soldiers that fight together. And it's those bonds of brotherhood that generate the energy and the courage necessary to overcome your fear, to put yourself in harm's way, to do what's necessary. Yeah, so no, they don't do it for country. They do it for the people that's next to them in the foxhole. Okay, but
1: they are, they would be giving their life for their their friend then. Yes. That is another example Yes. As well as Desmond Dawes.
0: Mm-hmm. So, was it easier for these chaplains to make the decision and, and be there together, you think, as a group, than if they had to do it by themselves all alone? Do you think that there's something in that? Well, as, as Christians, are Christians ever truly alone? Those who've, who've accepted Christ. We see Stephen when he was humanly by himself, but it says in the scripture his face was radiating like that of an angel. And he says, heaven opened up to him, and he saw heaven at that moment. Naturalists would argue that it is normal to seek to save self, even to kill to save self. Mm-hmm. Self-defense, in other words. It's, it's, it's normal, it's natural. Do you think, what would have happened if those chaplains would have fought and killed people to get on those boats? Would said, well, that's normal. But naturalists would say that's just normal. Normal human, you know, it's, it's evolution. The strong survive. Aren't you mixing here
2: evolution and Christianity? And the two are, they don't mix. And this very illustration shows
0: it. Yeah, I, I, am, I am actually drawing the, con- I'm not mixing, I'm drawing the contrast.
2: You better say.
0: Yes. Drawing the contrast. That's right. I want you to see the contrast. But the, the contrast or that mixture, if you want to say, where does that exist, that the pull between those two pull, those two powers? Where does it happen? In our hearts. We have hearts that are mixed. We have a spiritual nature in the scriptures. That we have a carnal nature. i you to use the scriptures words. We have a desire to pull to save self, don't we? And can we overcome that desire on our own? How can we overcome that natural, innate desire in those circumstances? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, in the body, I notice it. it's the life I live right here. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I that live. Christ lives in me. What's that mean? It's no longer selfish me. It's no longer me seeking to get ahead for me that's living. It's a new heart that's like Christ who loves others more than self, that lives in me now. And that doesn't come from me. That comes from Christ who died to provide that for me. And by faith and trust, I open my heart and he dwells within me. This is the rubber on the road, the root issue, the bottom line. That we have to have a fundamental change of heart motive. What is it that is the primary driving engine in our lives? Watching out for number one? Or... Giving of self to, to help others. And it's Christmas time. It's Christmas season. It's the opportunity to give of ourselves. It reminds us naturally, comes up from all sources, not just in class, all over. We hear on the radio all these opportunities give, 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 give. Have we, have we taken opportunities to, to involve ourselves in helping and giving to others? Second paragraph, it says, the Bible emphasizes sound doctrine. But this emphasis is in the context of holy living. In order to point out that the true goal of biblical teaching is an ethical life, one that is manifested in obligations to others. In fact, if you look carefully at those texts in Timothy and Titus, they link sound doctrine with correct living as if correct living itself is sound doctrine. What do you hear them saying? Sin is a behavioral problem. Ah, okay. They're saying sin is a behavioral problem? Could be heard that way, no question. Could they also be suggesting that it's more than what you think or claim to believe, it's also how you live? Now, it's important to know the truth. There's no question, because we can't be set free without the truth. The reality of how the universe works, some might call doctrine. But are they suggesting that it's more important to live right than to know right? Let me put it this way. Could you know right doctrine and live by the enemy's methods. Absolutely. Could someone who isn't a Christian, i.e. they haven't consciously gone through the process of claiming Jesus as their Savior, still live a Christian life? Romans two thirteen through 15 For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, because God looks where? Oh, God. Yeah, we look where? Outward appearance, yeah. It's not in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who are declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness. And, and, And so, what's the new covenant? I will write my law on your hearts these people who haven't even had the benefit of Scripture, Paul is saying, have experienced the writing of the law upon the heart and are looked upon as God is right and righteous. Do they know the right day of the week to worship on? Do Do we have concerns about what Paul is saying? Can someone be saved without Jesus? No way. Uh, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men which, which whereby men might be saved. No other name. So then how do we put it together? Is there a difference between being saved by Christ and knowing one is being saved by Christ?
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You, you, can, um, res- you can respond to the influences of the Holy Spirit without really understanding what it is that's drawing or influencing
0: you. So yeah, let me say that again. Is there a difference between being saved by Christ and knowing one is being saved by Christ? Is there a difference between being saved by a particular person, you're drowning in the ocean, you're being saved by that person, they're pulling you out, and knowing who's pulling you out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a difference, isn't there? Yeah. So I would suggest to you, nobody who is saved is saved by anybody other than Christ. Mm-hmm. But not everybody knows it's Christ who's saving them. But it's better to know him. Oh, no question. I'm not suggesting that's the ideal, of course. Because what happens if you're frantic and you're, and you're drowning and, 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 and your dad comes up? You're, it's, a, it's a kid who's drowning and their dad comes up. It's okay, I've got you. It's okay. What's the kid do? A stranger comes up. What's the kid do? He may fight them. The stranger may overpower them and still save them, but there may be this fighting and resistance going. Yes, it's much better to know. No question about it, yeah. In uh, Zechariah 13.6, 6, uh, this is the scripture. If someone asks him, What are these wounds on your body? he will answer, The wounds I was given in the house of my friends. <laughs> well, well, the implication is very powerful here. It's suggesting that in the new heaven and the new earth, they're going to people go up to Christ and go, Where'd you get those wounds? What are those? Who are you? And, and the point being is, they don't know, they haven't heard the story. That's why they're asking, and he tells them. So what are the implications for evangelism? It's you guys. What is the central, most important truth to bring people? Love. The truth about God's character of love. That's it. That is the central, most important truth to bring people. The Sabbath, State of the Dead, Baptism, all the other doctrines. One, can one believe those things and still hold Satan's view of God? Yeah, we see that 2,000 years ago when they put Christ on the cross. Can one be confused about those things but hold the right picture of God's character and love others more than self? Maybe those chaplains didn't have every little doctrinal thing right. They didn't agree with each other. But look at, their, at what they, how they lived. And then the next paragraph says the Christian is saved in order to be God's agent for the salvation and good of others amidst the great controversy between good and evil. To be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, however, much a cliche, does represent a reality that Christians need to avoid. Certainly heaven is our ultimate home, but for now we're still on earth and we need to know how to live while here. What do you think about that paragraph? Our purpose. Our purpose as Christians. Well, if we jump over to the last paragraph on Sunday's lesson, it says, The Bible teaches that the fundamental purpose for all of God's creation is to glorify Him. Sin derailed this reality in a very big way, but God directed His saving action toward us in order to bring us back to participate with all creation in glorifying Him. Christ purchased us for the sake of God's glory. And, and it goes on to say that. So, what do you think about this idea that... Our purpose is to glorify God. Does this mean we're to to sing songs, wave palm branches, and shout Hosannas? Is that what it's talking about? Is that how we glorify God?
1: We glorify God by having a character
0: like His. Oh, that's beautifully said. I hope everybody heard that. We glorify God by having a character uh, like His.
2: Those four men went down totally gave up self, totally reflecting the God they've been talking about.
0: So let me ask you a fundamental question about this idea of of our purpose to glorify God. For whose good are we called to glorify God? Why does God want us to glorify Him? Does He need our praise? Does His ego need boosting? Does He need validating does he need affirming? Is it for his need that we are to glorify him? No. Then who gets the benefit of this? It's to get that God wants us to glorify him for our good for our advancement for our development for our growth for our transformation for our healing uh, we were created in his image with the capacity to grow god is infinite we're finding through all eternity future to continue to grow in all of our capabilities and abilities as we assimilate and become more like him it's for our good he asks us to do this and as we do this in this world of sin for the good of others who may uh, be influenced by what they see in our life but it's, it's real important that we don't get this idea that sometimes can be there, that, that heaven is a place where all millions and billions of beings, God sits up on a big pinnacle, and, and, and there's this vast plain where all these beings are, are prostrating themselves before him, and he's just basking it up. That would be grossly distorted. That's Satan's view of God. God is constantly, it's, it's the flow of every, the opposite way. What's it say? In uh, Daniel chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days took his throne, rivers of fire came out from before him. The energy was flowing the other direction. Flowing out from God, filling us. We are to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes from the Father, fills us, and that love is to flow out from us to others. It's this direction. And in doing that, we glorify God. Yes, way in the back. I think there was a hand, Zoe.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Our purpose is to show God's love if one is truly heavenly-minded, he or she will do what Jesus did. And then um, Eve also wrote, um, because we become like the one we worship, and also that description sounds like the Babylonian tower that Nebuchadnezzar did.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when you think about this type of glorifying God, does the Bible text come to mind? Like maybe Revelation 14, fear God and give glory to him, give glory to to him, for the hour of
4: his judgment. his
0: judgment has come. Is there a connection between the revelation message and God's original purpose for creating man in Eden? Is there a connection? What, what was the purpose of creating man in Eden? Was there something happening in the universe? Was, was mankind made as a special creation to reveal something unique about God? In, in what kind of a setting? What was happening when this happened? War. And, and, and war over what? God's trustworthiness. And what was mankind given that, as far as we know, other intelligent beings had not been given? Two, two, two powers. What? Procreation. The ability to come to the unity of love and create beings in their image. A very godly power. And there's another one Dominion. Dominion the ability to govern. This planet was theirs to govern. Why? What would, it reveal? what would it have revealed about God if they would have stayed faithful and loyal and had children and governed this planet in a sinless way? Wow. We can't imagine what the lesson would have been, how beautiful this world would have been, and what the unlinking beings would have learned. Satan would have been exposed. We were, we were created as a temple, a dwelling place where God dwells by his spirit. Where the law of love, a living law, not not something that is codified like your DNA code on a on a piece of paper written on stone. No. A living law that is lived out, written on the hearts of the intelligent beings. This is what it was to be, to reveal God's character. And Satan, of course, saw this danger to his mission. And what did he want to do? He wanted to write something else there. He wanted to efface and erase the image of God in you and me and write. His. Do you, remember, do you remember the stories in the New Testament when Jesus came in contact with demoniacs? I mean, these are beings whose minds are now dominated by demons. It gives us an opportunity to contrast. When we follow Satan and his methods, what do we look like? Look at the description of the demons. The demoniacs, I mean. And, and sitting next to them, here we have Christ. Standing with them? What do we look like when the Spirit dwells in us and we are fulfilling God's purposes for us? Do you see a contrast in Jesus and, and the demoniacs? Uh, what, what kind of a character, what kind of a, a being do you see represented in the demoniacs before Christ sets them free? How would you describe them? Kind? kind? <laughs> Self controlled? <laughs> Pardon? Out of control, control, irrational, uh, destructive, uh, selfish, um, wild, animalistic, debased, vile, gross, disgusting. Anybody want to be like that? This is what Satan wants humanity to look like. Why? Who was humankind made in the image of? And if we look like that, remember, we're here to glorify God, then he can say, that's what God's like, I told you. This This is what he really looks like when he gets his makeup off. See I, what I've done here. I haven't made them this way, guys. What I have done is I have stripped away the makeup that he put on, and you're seeing their real self now. And Christ comes and said, "No, this this is this is what God is like. This is what mankind was made to be."
1: And also terrifying. Yes, I believe they were just trapped completely, but yet. One of them cried out to Jesus and he healed them.
0: Yeah, he set their minds free, no question. Yes.
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did when he came to earth, is to release us from that trap, like so many that are with drugs and different things.
0: Let's jump on to Monday's lesson. We're talking about Christian living. And Monday's lesson is talking about tithe and offerings. Um, if the cattle in the Thousand Hills are God's, And he creates everything, and he can create a new world just like that. Why does he instruct us to give tithes and offerings? Does God need our money? Do we need to give? Yeah, Consider the analogy of the uh, water pipes in the home of your house connected to a municipal source of water that comes in pure and fresh and clean. And you walk away and shut off the valves, and and you leave your house for 20 years, and you come back 20 years later, and you open the tap and pour pour out that first glass. You're going to drink it? Well, what's, what was, it prob- was the water something wrong with it when it came into the house? No, what happened? It stagnates. it stagnates, yes. If it doesn't flow, it stagnates. You see, this is a metaphor for your heart and God's love. God is the municipal source of never-ending love. Our hearts are to be filled with his love. And, and if we open the heart and let the love flow, it stays fresh. But if we become selfish and close the heart, our hearts stagnate. And thus, God gave a prescription, a prescription like a doctor gave a prescription to help us learn to open those rusted valves of our hearts and learn how to give. And those are tithes and offerings. one of the prescriptions amongst others that he has given for us. Now... Let's jump to Friday and read what Friday says, because it has a question on the issue of tithe. The second question, it says, "I dwell more on the whole issue of tithe, tithing. Some argue that they should be able to give tithe to whom they choose instead of through the channels of the organized church body of which they are members. What is the great danger of that attitude? I just want you to remember that, that, that this was put in the quarter. I didn't bring this question up. <laughs> well, let me... Um, Do you have any thoughts on whom the tithe should be paid before I share with you what one of the founders of our church wrote?
3: I think uh, it should be paid to whomever the Holy Spirit tells you to pay it to.
0: Here's one view from one of the founders of our church. Quote, there are ministers' wives, Sister Star, Haskell, Wilson, and Robinson, who have been devoted, earnest, soul, whole-souled workers, giving Bible readings and praying for, with families, helping along by personal effort just as successfully as their husbands. These women give their whole time and are told that they receive nothing for their labors because their husbands receive wages. We'll come to the whole male-female equality thing in a little while. (laughs) I tell them to go forward and all such decisions will be revised. The word says the laborer is worthy of his hire. When any such decision as this is made, I will, in the name of the Lord, protest. I will feel it my duty to create a fund from my tithe money to pay these women who are accomplishing just an essential work as the ministers are doing. And this tithe, I will reserve for work in the same lines as that of ministers hunting for souls, fishing for souls. And then this one, it has been presented to me by whom? It has been presented to me for years that my tithe was to be appropriated by myself to aid the white and colored ministers who were neglected and did not receive sufficient um, support to support their families. So they didn't receive sufficient from where? Hmm. Yeah. When my attention was called to the aged ministers, white or black, it was my special duty to investigate into the, their necessity and supply their need. This was to be my special work, and I have done this as in a number of cases. No man should give notoriety the fact that in special cases the tithe is being used in this way. I have myself appropriated my tithe to the most needy cases brought to my to my notice. I have been instructed to do this, and as the money is not notice, as the money is not withheld from the Lord's treasury. But where is she giving it? But it's not help from the Lord's treasury. It is not a matter that should be commented upon. Hmm. For it will necessitate my making known these matters which I do not desire to do because it is not best. Interesting. We'll talk about that too. Some cases have been kept before me for years and I have supplied their need from the tithe as God has instructed me to do. Oh, now we know where she got that instruction. Okay. And if any person shall say to me, Sister White, will you appropriate my tithe where you know it is most needed? I shall say, yes, I will. And I have done so. I commend those sisters who have placed their tithe where it will, where it is most needed to help do the work that is being left undone. I send this matter to you so that you may uh, not make a mistake, circumstances alter cases. Wow, circumstances alter cases. I would not advise that anyone should make a practice of gathering up the tithe money, but for years there have now and then been persons who have lost confidence in the appropriation of the tithe who have placed their tithe in my hands and said that if I did not take it, they would themselves appropriate it to the families of of the most needy ministers they could find. I have taken the money, given a receipt for it, and told them how it was to be appropriated. Now, that sounded a little bit different than what I read over here. (laughs) Didn't it? Hmm. So, any thoughts about that before I have some more questions for you? Yes. There was a comment that you made in
2: there that you read that something about a practice.
0: Yeah, a practice. What was that sentence? It says, Circumstances alter cases. I would not advise that anyone should make a practice of gathering up tithe money. In other words, let's not go out and teach the church to do what they want.
2: Some of us are old enough that we've seen groups in the past that got just dis- got a problem with the church and and withdrew their money and wouldn't pay tithe. And,
0: and wouldn't pay tithe to, to the th- church. Thank you. Didn't mean they weren't paying tithe. Yeah, they were paying tithe to their offshoot
2: and. And you and I know that there are offshoots or groups that, as Sister White is indicating here, she evidently was one of those at that particular on that particular issue, and she chose to go ahead and support. No, it.
0: She was instructed by God to go ahead. Right. Oh wait, it's a little different, isn't it? Than she chose. Yeah. Well, she chose to follow God's instructions. She yeah. Heard it
2: from God, you and I can hear it from God. But it's in a little different vein.
0: But the church leadership and general conference session would know better what we're hearing from God than we do, right?
2: Well, we are told that when they're in session, it is the highest. So yes, in that context, yes.
0: Really? Because I've got some where she said that in session they were, they were doing Satan's work. So.
2: You're educating me now. Yeah.
0: Remember those quotes we had a little bit while back? Yeah. The Lord was not in those sessions, she said. So it depends.
2: She made the other statement. Then?
0: Yeah, t- because what's it say right here? Circumstances alter cases. That's what we forget. One of the problems we have. We're going to come to it because I want to get to the whole marriage thing, which is coming up in the next lesson. Because one of the things we, we, we like is we like cookie cutter rules. We want a cookie cutter rule to apply in all circumstances. Let's see if I have that. It's down here in the notes somewhere. But I, I, let's. It's, you had a hand right here. Go ahead.
4: These comments are very educated and dedicated from a very educated and dedicated person who has given her life for God's work. You mentioned earlier the difference between being immature and mature. And a lot of us can make decisions from a very immature perception compared to a mature perception so it's it gets really it gets really dicey you know when someone is saying oh well i i'm i'm not going to pay tithe i'm going to put it wherever i want
0: to. but but see but see, what, see how you just rephrase what she said when you said i'm not going to pay tithe i'm going to put it wherever i want you've actually said i'm not going to pay tithe she says i'm going to put it here and i'm still paying tithe and it's still going into the lord's treasury See you, 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 you. See how we hear these things. If it's not going to the church, we have this bias. If it's not going to the church, we're not paying tithe. Doesn't know what she's saying. Wait, no, we got it on the, online. Online. Um, an online caller says,
1: E.G.W. Uh, says somewhere that if the general conference falters, we must look to Jesus.
0: Okay. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What is the purpose of the tithe? Yes, way in the back. It's...
3: Uh, it's so that we can remember to be generous with our. The tithe is for us; is to make us generous and open, and it's supposed to support the work of the church. See, see, it doesn't necessarily say it's supposed to support the work of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. It's supposed to work of God's church.
0: See, my understanding is the tithes are God's; they're not ours. Because the of the offerings are ours to give generously, but the tithes are us to be loyal and faithful. To God, they're, they're His. But what are they for? What are their purpose? was the support of the ministry. Back in the, back in the days of ancient Israel, the Levites were supported by the tithe. They had no inheritance of land. So they, they received the tithe that the the other tribes... And did you notice what she said repeatedly about what her tithes are being directed to do? Ministers. Not just ministers, Ministers. She get to the wives. She said, my tithe I will reserve for work in the same line as those of the ministers, hunting for souls, fishing for souls. The tithe money is to promote the gospel message to win people to Christ. Ministers. Yes.
2: (laughs) Yes. The early Christian church was not supported by the conference of
0: their death. Yes, we could, yes, Wendell. I, I,
2: I think one issue needs to be stated, though, is implied in this discussion is the tithe is the Lord's and that we have, etc. No, everything is the Lord's. The tithe is given as a symbol that we understand that
0: Thank you. everything is the Lord. Thank you.
2: And so we need to treat everything as if it's God's and appropriate to His, his
0: mission his work. No, I, I, well, I thank you for clarifying that. I really appreciate that. Um, so w- what, what I hear the point of all this is, is that each person has their own saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't be saved through anybody else's experience, can we? No. And the tithe, God, as I think Russell said very early on, can direct people in circumstances to, he wants the tithe to be used here or he wants the tithe to be used here as was very clear with Ellen White and others of her day, were doing. Toward the laborers, and, and particularly toward those laborers who were working to spread the gospel, but were not funded by the church. That's who this was going to. And we, and the point is, we should not, she said very clearly, we should not condemn them or judge them for it. That's, right. That's what we, we, should, we shouldn't stand a judgment of somebody else. It's in our place. This is part of it as well. And I think this is another great example of how God doesn't set up cookie-cutter rules that apply to all people in all circumstances, but operates upon principles, and those principles can be applied differently depending on the situation. But may, many of us want, don't like this. We get confused. We feel insecure. We, 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 we simply want to give that rule, do this and do that, and feel good in doing right. Hey, I did the right thing, so thou shalt not work on Sabbath. Great, we won't heal on Sabbath, and we, we feel good while we leave them sick and dying. Or, I felt so good that I was doing the right thing because we weren't going to heal that guy on Sabbath. We'll wait till tomorrow. Or, the rule says give your tithe to the systemized, organized system. Great, give blindly. Never question what message that system you're in is, is promoting. Don't question what message they're giving. Because there are millions of people in lots of different systems all told the same thing just give your tithe, give your tithe to the system, give your tithe to the system. Don't question it, just give your tithe. Or are we to come and question and say, wait a minute, my tithe is to go to present the gospel, the true message of Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. I might be in this system, but is this system presenting the message? And if you're convicted, it's not. Should you be supporting it with your money? The
2: Lord loves a cheerful
0: giver. The (laughs) Lord loves a cheerful giver, absolutely. So let's be very clear now. And I have to say this, it's in the notes. I put it in writing. Lest someone take this discussion to think that I've said something I haven't said, particularly that I'm soliciting that you pay your tithe to us.
1: <laughs>
0: I am not soliciting that. Okay? I am advocating for each person to become an intelligent friend of God, to stop blindly following rules without thinking, to use all of your resources, whatever those resources are, to spread the truth about God that will lighten the world for his return. That's what I'm advocating for. Yes? Just,
1: just another thing. If, if a person doesn't feel like going there, doesn't, doesn't even, it isn't even on their screen, and they're worrying about it. I often think of how Judas was collecting the money, and Jesus didn't ever tell any of the people to stop. Sure. Handing. So it's like if it isn't on your screen to worry about it today.
0: That's exactly right. Many people see they still receive the blessing because they, in honest heart, were given the money where they thought it was going. But once they become, once somebody comes under conviction, that hey, this is not, or or the Lord, the Lord, the Spirit brings, like in Ellen White's case, an awareness that there's a need here that's not being met, and and she's gonna see. That's that's what we're talking about here. Yes, we got to move on because there's a bigger issue that you guys are gonna wanna fry. And, (laughs) And that's Wednesdays, and that's Christian marriage. Christian marriage. A second paragraph says, To define something is to provide its meaning. Today it is said that marriage is difficult to define because the meaning of marriage differs for for different people, times, and cultures. The Bible, however, has no such flexible idea of marriage. Selective reading, I would think. (laughs) According to the Bible, marriage is an institution put in place by God in which two adults of different genders covenant to share an intimate and lasting personal relationship Biblical marriage is marked by an appropriate, uh, excuse me, an appreciation of the equality of the male and female, a deep bond of unity where goals are blended, and a sense of permanence and faithfulness and trust. As with a relationship with God, the relationship between husband and wife should be sacred and guarded. You notice it said, and I agree, I actually agree with everything said in here, other than the idea that uh, the Bible's clear. I think the Bible is actually not quite so clear when you look at the polygamy issues and stuff that was happening in the Old Testament. It's not quite as clear as they would like it to be. Um, you, you follow what I'm saying here? Okay. I think properly studied, the Bible does come out clear, but it, it, it also lends itself to being misunderstood in certain places. That's what I meant earlier. But other than that, I agree with them. I do agree that it's equality of male and female. Like, like Ellen White was referencing a little, a little moment ago when those pastor's wives were not being paid. Wait, was that equality? Hmm. Should we promote equality in marriage? And if there's inequality, do, do you think most Christian organizations promote true equality between husband and wife? No. Then is that a, is that a, a violation of, of the marriage covenant? Are churches promoting violation of marriage covenant? If they're not promoting equality of husband and wife. Boy, we don't want to go there, do we? No, we want to point the. We we, we want to. We want to definitely get that splinter in someone else's eye before we deal with the beam in our own. What do you think the purpose of emphasizing marriage and the attacks upon marriage are? Why are they doing this? You think they have an agenda here? Could could they feel that marriage is under attack? From where do they feel marriage is under attack? the writers of this quarterly. Well, fourth paragraph. Together with issues of polygamy, cohabitation, divorce, remarriage, and practice of homosexuality, what challenges of human sexuality can you identify in today's society? What biblical-based counsel can you bring to bear on these issues? The lesson asked for some biblical-based counsel. How many of these issues, these issues that they listed, are confused in the church because the church is confused with local culture? For instance, polygamy in Bible times, cultural practice, and God's children were practicing it and weren't really criticized for that. They had bad, 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 problems because of it. But you don't really see God coming down and saying to Abraham when Abraham was having a conversation with God and Abraham was talking to him and all this stuff, hey, you know, get rid of your other wives. Only have Sarah. He said the promised child comes through Sarah. Didn't tell Jacob to get rid of Leah after he was duped into marrying her in the first place. If ever there's a case for a divorce, there you go. Didn't say get rid of her, even though the promise wasn't coming through Leah.
3: Yes, he did tell the Israelites to get rid of their wives through Ezra.
0: Through Ezra he did, but only the pagan ones, not the multiple ones. Right. Never seen so if you had multiple Jewish ones, you were okay. Yeah. <laughs> like David. Like David who had multiple Jewish ones. Because God
3: in his great forbearance left the sins committed before him. Yeah. The very fact
2: that you state that this is a there's question in it, the very fact that you're short of an explanation, and that's the first time I've ever seen you there, says that <laughs> Not clear on
0: this subject. According let's talk about this we're talking about the, the interaction between what the church, the church, and the, and the, and the culture around the church. Um, according let's look at a little cultural history of marriage. Um, in ancient Greece, there was no special civil ceremony was required for marriage, only mutual agreement and the fact uh, the couple would regard each other as husband and wife. That's it. In other words, cohabitation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was considered marriage in ancient Greece. Okay? Uh, And the Greek men married in their late 20s, and the women married in their late teens. In ancient Rome, there were two types of marriage. The traditional form, called conventio in manum, uh, required a ceremony with witnesses and was also dissolved by a ceremony. And in this type of marriage, the woman lost her family rights of inheritance from her old family and gained them with her new family. And she was now no longer under the authority of her father, but now was under the authority of her husband. Or there was a, uh, a what's called a free marriage known as the Sina Manu, uh, and in this arrangement, arrangement, the wife remained under the membership and inheritance of her original family and stayed under the authority of her father, not her husband. Um, the minimum age of marriage for for girls in Rome was the minimum age twelve that 's right twelve uh, from the early Christian era thirty to three hundred twenty five uh, a d um, Marriage was brought was thought of as primarily a private matter with no uniform religious or other ceremony being required. However, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch wrote, wrote in 110 to Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna the following, It becomes both men and women who marry to form their union with the approval of the bishop that their marriage may be according to God and not after their own lust. That was 110 A.D. In the 12th century, women were obligated to take the name of their husbands, and started uh, and starting in around the second half of the 16th century, parental consent, along with church consent, was required for marriage. With few local exceptions, until 1545, Christian marriages in Europe were by mutual consent, declaration of intention to marry upon subsequent physical union of the parties. And they could could actually give a commitment to marriage, a verbal commitment. And uh, and if they said, I marry you, then you were considered married. If they say, I will marry you, you're considered betrothed. And that was it at that time, if it was approved by all the parties involved. Um, Let's say the average age of marriage in most Northwestern Europeans from the late 14th century to the 19th century was the age of 25, as the church dictated that both parties had to be at least 21 years of age to marry without consent of their parents. The bride and groom were roughly of the same age during this time. Let's see. Okay, and it also talks about how marriages would go up and down depending on the economy, and after the Black Death, there was a lot uh, increase in marriage and children because there was a lot more uh, higher-paying jobs available after the Black Death, so people could afford to get married. Um, so thus far, through Western society, um, what we've seen is that marriage is primarily a church institution without state involvement. Divorce, and I didn't read it, but it's in, it's in the notes. Divorce annulment was actually done by the church. You had to actually go into the ecumenical church um, court in order to get a divorce during this time. Something changed. What, what was it, do you think, that brought change?
4: Reformation.
0: The Protestant Reformation. As part of the Protestant Reformation, the role of recording marriages and setting the rules for marriage passed to the state, reflecting Martin Luther's view that marriage was a worldly thing. Remember, he was a priest, and the priest was indoctrinated with a certain idea that, you know, you're not to marry, and this is something the church, you know, the, the anyway, so he thought it was a worldly thing. By the 17th century, many of the Protestant European countries had a state involvement in marriage. As part of the Counter-Reformation in 1563, the Council of Trent decreed that the Roman Catholic Church, a Roman Catholic marriage, uh, would be recognized only if the marriage ceremony is officiated by a priest with two witnesses. The council... Also authorized a catechism in 1566 which defined marriage as quote the conjugal union of man and woman contracted between two qualified persons which obliges them to live together throughout life. In the early modern period John Calvin and his Protestant colleagues reformulated Christian marriage by enacting the Marriage Ordinance of Geneva which imposed the dual requirements of state registration and church consecration to constitute marriage for recognition. So, don't you find it interesting that marriage was historically primarily either a a private thing or later became an exclusively church thing that the Protestant Reformation merged the church and the state on this issue? Don't you find that interesting? Hmm. Does it trouble you that this is an example of state church union orchestrated by the protestant reformation what's the lesson is there a lesson in this because what's happening now the churches are upset that the state is now trying to redefine marriage when the church has brought the state into it what's going to happen when we try to bring the church into other excuse me the state into other elements of religious belief is there a difference between what you choose to do in your personal life and what one should seek government to do in regard to marriage? Is there a difference between what you choose to do personally in regards to what you do in your personal life and what you would seek for the government to do in regards to marriage? Is there a difference between biblical marriage and marriage as sanctioned by a human government? Are there, are there differences? Should the church seek to get the state to enforce the church's view of marriage? That's happening right now, guys. Church and state, we're pressuring the church, we're pressuring the state, big time. Um, would you be happy if Muslims became the majority of our country and pressured the state to legalize polygamy as it is in certain Muslim countries? <coughs> would you like that? No, no. Well, 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 then, well then what's, what's the difference in principle of Christians pressuring the state to have marriage be what we want it to be? What's the difference in principle? What about in the days past when Utah had polygamy as legal? Okay, is there a difference in spiritual union, mm-hmm. marriage blessed by God, and legal marriage as authorized by the state? Is there a difference? Mm-hmm. Does, do the state and church serve the same master?
4: No.
0: Do the state and church have the same agenda? No. no. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> do the state and I'm talking the true church of God now? Okay, okay thank you, thank you for that, Russell. Yeah. Do, do, do the state and the true church of God concern themselves with the same issue, same elements of marriage? Church is concerned with God's blessing, unity of two individuals in a holy covenant, spiritual wholeness, honoring God with one's life, revealing the truth of God's character as He designed for marriage, family integrity, raising children in godly ways. This is what the church is concerned with, right?
1: right.
0: Okay. The state is concerned with any of those. those state concerned whether whether you honor God with your life? No. no state's not concerned with any of that. The state is concerned with legal contracts. Who inherits your property? Who's the legal guardian? Who makes legal health care decisions if you're incapacitated? Who's got the, that's what the state's concerned with. Should adults in our society be allowed to enter into legal contracts regarding the disposition of their property, guardianship, medical decision-making?
4: Sure.
0: What if those adults are homosexual? <laughs> that's what the state is concerned with.
1: It's fine, just don't
0: call it marriage. Call it a legal she commission. said it's fine, just don't call it marriage. But the problem is, the church, has already, the church has already brought the state in and merged with the state on this issue and has made the state responsible. For, prior, prior to the Reformation, marriages were registered at the church, they were not registered at the state and one way for the Protestant Reformation to usurp some of the Catholic Church power over people's lives, and think about it, we're, we're in a Reformation. We don't want you to be part of the Catholic Church anymore, but every time you get married, you've got to go to the Catholic Church to have your, your wedding registered with them. You like that idea? No, we're, we we got a better... Part. We're going to do it with the state. We're going to let the state register our marriages. This is what happened. And now we don't like the ultimate consequences, and what are we doing? We're, we're fighting to get the state to, to, to enforce our values on other people. Isn't it interesting?
2: Are the marriages even registered in the church today?
0: In the Catholic church? I, I, I don't know.
2: Just take advents. I'm talking Protestants.
0: Well, Protestants historically haven't necessarily done that. That's yeah. what, yeah, that's,
2: I'm just thinking, you know, we have
0: the I pastor see. there, but we don't yeah. even register. No, them. that's because we're registered in heaven. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
0: okay. Now, there's other issues regarding these lines. Can we live in peace as Christians with those who enter into such contracts in our society? Or must we must we hound the state and use the church energy to try to turn those laws? Hmm. Is every marriage blessed by God? No. Whoa, guys, see what you just said. Is every husband and wife who go through a marriage ceremony united by God? Hmm. Well, remember what it says. Let no man put asunder what God has joined together. Has God joined them all together? Then, wait a minute. Hmm. Then man can put that asunder, can't they? Because God hasn't joined it. Isn't that interesting? Or some marriage is actually a trap of Satan. Yes. Yes, they are. Yes, Lisa.
4: Uh, Just a quick example. My parents uh, were married in Denmark,
1: and that's a Lutheran country, and they went to the courthouse and got married, and then they had a religious ceremony at the church. So that way that they had God's blessing on the marriage besides being legal.
0: Can two people get married legally and not be married in God's eyes. So what system do you prefer? One in which such matters are decided either privately or by the church, as in the Middle Ages. One that we have today in which matters are decided by the state. If you want a divorce, you don't go to the church. In the Middle Ages, you went to the church. Or a mixed system in in which one has to get both the state to sign off and the church to sign off. Which system do you prefer? Think this through, guys. Who would you really want to be making a decision on your marriage and whether there's a marriage dispute of some kind? The state of the church. Really? You'd rather bring your private issues before the church? You want to tell the church about the stuff that's in the, in the, in the bottom drawer behind the dresser? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You really want to bring that before the church? I, I think most people would rather go to the state, personally. Yes, and and then that's going to expose something else. Why? Because they don't feel safe in the church.
3: Render yes. under Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God and the things that are God's. The state should be occupied with those things that you just listed. Where does the property go? Who inherits? Who? Where is the custody issues? Those things are properly in front of the state. And there should be some kind of contract that people enter into or uh, dispose of that the state's in control But we as Christians should be married in the church as God has instructed us to be married and I'm talking about the larger church of God so what happened in Denmark is actually not a bad thing you go register at the courthouse that you have entered into this agreement
0: we do that here we just don't have to go to the courthouse to do it
3: God God doesn't bless that document if you will but then you go to church and have your service and God blesses the union of man and woman
0: yeah, and, and, and you can have that service, but if you don't have the license from the state, signed by the authorized agent, and then registered with the state, you're still not according to the state married. So you can have the ceremony and still be married in God's eyes and not married in the state's eyes. So you still have no property transfer and everything else. So yes, we still have that kind of system here. But when it comes to divorce, uh, we and guys, we're already two minutes over, and we're going to talk about divorce, but we're over time now I told you we had another issue that you really wanted to get to but we didn't have time so the question of divorce we'll just have to put that off to another time yeah. our, our gracious Heavenly Father we thank you so much that you love us with an infinite and perfect love and Lord we know on this issue of marriage it is, it is designed by you to reveal you to, to be a, a, a union of, of genuine intimacy trust perfection of love hearts bonding in and, and, and love and trust Lord this is what we want our marriages to be We also know that you hate divorce, and divorce only happens when love breaks down. Lord, we we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Uh, We don't presume to know every circumstance and every situation. We ask that your spirit would be involved in the hearts and minds of those who are struggling in relationship problems. Um, Heal those that are open to be healed and um, set free those who are in bondage. We pray in your holy name. Amen.